2022. Welcome to another episode of Muse News, the BCMA's monthly museum sector news podcast. Each month, we recap some of the latest news, happenings, and announcements from museums, galleries, and heritage organizations across BC and beyond. I'm Lorenda. And I'm Ryan. It's great to be back, Lorenda. The definition of a museum has significantly changed for the first time in 50 years after a unanimous vote by members of the International Council of Museums in Prague today. Representatives from more than 500 museums globally voted to pass the new definition at the ICOM Extraordinary General Assembly in the Czech Republic capital, with 92% voting in favor of the new definition. It includes for the first time phrases like inclusivity, accessibility, sustainability, and ethics. Alberto Gallardi, the president of ICOM, said the new definition was common ground for museums all over the world. He tells the art newspaper, this new definition is aligned with some of the major changes in the role of museums today. We have been forced to change. I really think that this decision will improve the role of museums around the world. The new definition in full reads as follows. A museum is a not-for-profit, permanent institution in the service of society that researches, collects, conserves, interprets, and exhibits tangible and intangible heritage. Open to the public, accessible, and inclusive, museums foster diversity and sustainability. They operate and communicate ethically, professionally, and with the participation of communities, offering varied experiences for education, enjoyment, reflection, and knowledge sharing. The definition will be assumed by UNESCO and will help to determine whether new private galleries and institutions around the world can describe themselves as an official recognized museum. The new definition has been hard fought. In 2019 at ICOM's last conference in Kyoto, Japan, a consensus on the draft definition was not reached by the General Assembly before it came to a vote. The lack of a resolution meant the old definition of a museum, one created in the 1970s and last amended in 2007, remained firm. The old definition did not reflect the reality of ICOM or the reality of museums around the world, Bruno Brulon, the co-chair of ICOM Define, the standing committee for the museum's definition, told the art newspaper. Brulon recognizes that the new definition was necessarily the result of a process of negotiation. A compromise has taken place, he says. We had to speak to and listen to people with very different perspectives. Some people think a term like repatriation is a very political word. But this new definition is still, I think, a very progressive statement. Phrases such as decolonization, repatriation, and restitution, the central issues for many museums in the developing world, were notably absent in the new definition. The development of a new definition is the result of the largest outreach project in the organization's history. Museum representatives from 126 of ICOM's national committees, encompassing the organization's more than 50,000 members, were spoken with over an 18-month period and over four distinct rounds of consultation by the ICOM Defined Committee. Museums across Africa, Latin America, and the Asian Pacific were consulted extensively in the development of the new definition. The details of how the definition will now be materially implemented are still to be worked out. Vernon Art Gallery stunned by council decision to decline mural project with mental health focus. Vernon City Council's decision to pull its support and $33,000 in funding previously slated for the controversial Behind the Mask Public Art Project and Exhibition has stunned those closest to the work. Quote, there needs to be a better system for decision-making on public art, Donna Kennedy, executive director of the Vernon Public Art Gallery, said in a press release in the aftermath of the change. 
quote, few cities consult the public in a manner proposed by members of council because art is emotional and subjective. Public art is an important means of providing not only beautification to the community, but also providing thought and dialogue through critical works designed to challenge the viewer. The project sparked intense public debate and petitions, both for and against the installation. More than 4,000 signatures appeared in an online petition against the artwork entitled, quote, Say No to Vernon's Scary New Murals. The project, Kennedy said, would offer many benefits to the community, economy, and culture, particularly in the area of creating a dialogue around mental health. Prior to the city reversing its decision, the project had reached its funding goals with $55,000 from Canada Council for the Arts, $33,000 from the City of Vernon, and $10,000 from the Regional District of North Okanagan, and $7,500 from Vernon Tourism. The supplies and artist fees have already been paid for. Gallery representatives said they may now have to return grant funds to Canada Council and potentially compromise its ability to secure future grants. The objects arrived in Haida Gwaii in late August from Britain. Among them, a heavy, intricate argillite carving of a ceremonial feast platter depicting a rockfish and orcas, which was inlaid with bone, likely made in the late 19th century. That platter was very amazing to hold, said AA, repatriation coordinator for the Haida Gwaii Museum. The weight of it, and then looking at the styles of the carving, the cross-hatching and everything, it was spectacular. There was also a painted wooden ladle, probably alder, it's difficult to tell because of its patina, and like the platter, certainly used for potlatch ceremonies. The items are part of an unusual and significant repatriation from a small museum in England's Peak District. Rather than the community asking for the items back, it was initiated by the British Museum with an unconditional offer of return. It's the right thing to do, and it's the only thing to do, said Brett Gaunt from the Bauxton Museum and Art Gallery in Derbyshire, who recently returned to Britain from Haida Gwaii. It was probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do a project like this. The Haida Gwaii Museum has received numerous repatriations, including from the Museum of Vancouver and other private collectors, but this offer was a surprise. The Boutston Museum is run by the Derbyshire County Council. Facing budget cuts, the council was winding down a decades-old program. The Derbyshire School Library Service was set up in the 1930s thanks to a grant to collect museum-quality objects that would be sent to schools in isolated rural villages of the area. They collected thousands of items, including what they called world culture objects. Access to museums has come a long way for this community since then, and with the county's financial challenges, a decision was made to end the program. The Bauston Museum received funding to find ethical solutions regarding what to do with the collection. It decided to hold on to some objects and offer some for transfer to other museums. But with Indigenous communities around the world asking for their belongings back, Gaunt recognized the opportunity to do something more. I remembered looking through the boxes and seeing that there was a group of objects related to Native American and First Nations cultures, said Gaunt, who was an assistant collections officer of restitution and repatriation. And I had a chat with my boss, and I said, it would be nice if we could repatriate these objects rather than send them to another museum, because they're just going to end up sitting in storage and not be fully appreciated. There can be issues, he notes, with the ways these objects are displayed. The UK is full of items, and very often they're not interpreted correctly. The museum put a selection of items on display and asked for public feedback. It was overwhelmingly positive and in agreement that objects should be repatriated, Gaunt recalls. 
so the tide is certainly turning. Five objects were returned to Haida Gwaii this summer, although a fish carving they thought was argillite, which is actually slate, was a mystery. The Haida Museum is working on determining where it should go. A painted bone totem pole might also turn out not to be Haida, but the platter, but the ladle, and an argillite boat panel pipe certainly are. The plan is to put these objects on display at the museum. Tumbler Ridge Fossils Identified Researchers say they've finally identified a set of unusual fossilized trackways discovered there in 2014, believed to be among the largest and oldest of their kind in Canada and North America. The findings were recently published in the Journal of Cretaceous Research and shared by the Tumbler Ridge Museum this week. The museum says three distinct types of tracks were found within a lease area of the Quintet Mine, large three-toed bird tracks, larger four-toed dinosaur tracks thought to be made of oviraptosaurus and pterosaur tracks. Quote, the pterosaur tracks are arguably the first to be identified in BC, although such large tracks have been found in Alberta, Alaska, and the western USA, said the museum in a news release. They appear to be the oldest thus far identified in Canada. The three-toed bird tracks, the museum said, are the largest from the Mesozoic era, the era of the dinosaurs, in North America, and among the largest in the world for its time period. After being grounded for the past three years due to the pandemic, volunteers at the BC Aviation Museum in North Saanich, BC, are ready for takeoff with the facility's first open house since 2019. On Saturday, August 20th, more than 40 tour guides will be on hand to provide visitors with an in-depth look into BC's aviation history. During the course of its 35-year history, the North Saanich-based museum has collected more than 30 aircraft and thousands of artifacts with each item representing a key moment in the province's history of flight. We want people to come in and explore, said BC Aviation Museum Board President Laura Lavin. Every year, there's new acquisitions. We get new planes, like the Grunman Tracker, we're the past of aviation and the future, she said. The collection of aircraft on display range from military aircraft made famous in the Second World War, such as a Spitfire and a Bristol Bomber, to a 1950s-era Tran-Canada Airlines Vickers 757 Viscount passenger airliner from the early days of commercial air travel. You can actually walk through the Viscount and see what public travel was like back then. You can really see how aviation has changed and grown through our history. In addition to the museum's aircraft displays and exhibits, a number of guest flyovers will take place during the open house. Harbor Air's Electric Beaver, Canada's first electrically powered commercial aircraft, will make an appearance during the one-day event. Organizers have arranged for a number of other special guests to appear at the event. The Victoria Airport Authority will have its fire trucks on display, and the Royal Canadian Air Force's 443 Squadron will be on hand with a cyclone helicopter for visitors to see. The BC Aviation Museum is located at 1910 Norseman Road, not far from Victoria International Airport. Royal BC Museum apologizes after 2017 carving declared Indigenous artifact. The Royal BC Museum apologized Tuesday and admitted for the first time that one of its artifacts is not, in fact, a centuries-old Indigenous stone monument, as museum curators once claimed. Rather, the stone was carved five years ago by a Victoria hobbyist with no ties to local Indigenous culture. Despite the museum's assertions about the stone's historic significance to the First Peoples of Vancouver Island, 
In a letter of apology, museum CEO Alicia Dubois said she was, quote, relieved and pleased to see the artwork return to its rightful owner. Quote, I would like to express my gratitude for your patience as we navigated this unfamiliar territory and extend a sincere apologies for the errors made during the process, Dubois wrote. I assure you as a team we have learned from this experience and we are taking concrete measures to ensure similar errors are not made in the future. Thor Froslev, a well-known community member and innovator in Squamish, BC, has died at the age of 89. Thor was one in a million, the district of Squamish said in a statement. His presence and unwavering commitment to art, culture, and community will genuinely be missed. Patricia Heitzman, who met Froslev about 30 years ago as a reporter at the local newspaper, The Squamish Chief, described him as a force in the community. He had his idea about what he wanted to see and what he wanted to happen, she told on the coast host Gloria Makarenko. Froslev came to Canada by way of Denmark in the mid-1950s. He worked and lived in communities across the province, but spent most of his time in Vancouver, holding jobs as an elevator operator, landscaper, bricklayer's helper, shoe factory, and sawmill worker. He moved to Squamish in the 60s, and after talking to local artists, bought some land and built a gallery in the Brackendale neighborhood, which opened in 1973, showcasing their work. Heitzman said he collected wood and beams and doors from old supermarkets to build the space. It's all wood and some of the posts are carved into forest nymphs or fish or eagles, Heitzman said. If a theater group in town needed a space, Heitzman said, he'd build a stage. And when they grew out of that space, he'd build another. According to the District of Squamish, Froslev served as a member of the local council in 1976 and 1977. In 1986, he established a local eagle count and festival. The art gallery says a world record 3,769 bald eagles were counted in 1994. The BC government established Brackendale Eagles Provincial Park in 1999. Frostlift received an award from the BC Achievement Foundation in 2016 for his work in creating the gallery and the eagle count. In July 2022, a mural in his honor was painted by Montreal-based muralist Kevin Lido in Squamish, where it is expected to remain for at least 10 years. Nishka Nation traveling to see stolen totem pole in Scotland. For the first time in living memory, the Niska will see their memorial totem pole that was stolen from their northern British Columbian nation. A delegation from the community is traveling this week to see the pole that was carved in the mid-1850s on display at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. They will meet with museum officials to discuss repatriating the pole that was taken without their consent by ethnographer Marcius Barbeau in 1929. Quote, It is not that we abandoned our villages or that we weren't caring for our poles, said Amy Parent, a Nishka member and research chair in Indigenous Education at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Quote, We were simply out food fishing. Quote, For us, it is the modern day equivalent of going to the grocery store and having the government come along and sell your home and have some anthropologist come in and take your precious family belongings. And shortly thereafter, you're going to have a church official show up and come take your children away. Parent says that the poll was taken at the peak of the potlatch band imposed by the Canadian government. The poll tells the story of Nishka warrior Sawit, who was in line to be chief but died in battle. The delegation will ask the government of Scotland and the museum to pay to transport the poll back to their nation. 
The Canadian Museum for Human Rights has chosen Vancouver to unveil the next step in an art project offering a hard look at the atrocities afflicted upon Indigenous children at residential schools. The Witness Blanket is a large installation with a permanent home at the CMHR in Winnipeg, aims to bridge Canada's dark past with a bright future. My father is a residential school survivor. He went to both Seashelt and St. Mary's in Mission. I grew up knowing very little about what that meant, said Master Carver, Carrie Newman, the man responsible for the witness blanket. He's a person who spent, like many other survivors, a lot of time protecting me and protecting future generations from having to feel what he felt. As this country tries to confront and reconcile the atrocities of colonialism, Newman is one of the voices leading the conversation. He and his team traveled from coast to coast to gather hundreds of objects from former residential school sites and interview survivors. When you go out into the community and you ask people to participate in a project like this, you have to be really sensitive about the question that you're asking, because just bringing up the subject can be triggering, said Newman, about talking to people about the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse endured at residential schools. It's traumatic stuff. TELUS has contributed $1 million to help Newman and CMHR launch a website with a digital version of the Witness Blanket, which they unveiled in downtown Vancouver on Monday. I hope that for those who didn't know very much about the history, that they learn a little bit. I hope that they find an object on the blanket that connects with them in a personal way, Newman said. The website is designed so users can zoom in and examine each of the hundreds of objects that make up the blanket and click on them to learn more. In the very center of the blanket, there is a door which once stood at the entrance of the infirmary at St. Michael's Residential School in Alert Bay. The digital witness blanket also includes video interviews from survivors who say St. Michael's was the scene of horrific abuse against numerous boys and girls. Those were bad experiences fighting that guy off, survivor Edwin Newman said about his experience with one abusive staff member, and then they promoted him to be the vice principal. The website also has resources for educators to help future generations understand what happened. Of course, that's a huge part of our Canadian identity, especially now as we think about it. We have a complex history. How do we move forward, said CMHR CEO Isha Khan. We know that by building some momentum around understanding where we come from, that's how we'll find our path forward in this country. By documenting their stories, the witness blanket can reduce the onus on survivors to constantly talk about the abuse they endured, which can be re-traumatizing. We thought that this was such a great opportunity to make this more widely available than the physical blanket is, said Newman about the digital version, but also that it would draw some of the burden away from survivors who were asked to come and tell their story again and again and again. Maybe this will enable them to not have to do quite so much of that labor. To stay up to date on breaking Muse news, follow our Twitter at BC Museums ASSN. And if you'd like your Muse news to be shared on this podcast, email the BCMA at museumsassn.bc.ca. Thank you and good night. Thank you.